Welcome back to All Kings Considered. I'm Dan Casey, and today we're here to bring you the best Staros that Westeros has to offer with our weekly breakdown of all things House of the Dragon. This week's Hot D gave us crabs, stabs, and blabs. Now, I know that sounds like I'm just doing that for the rhyme, but it's actually the canonical term for when people talk about politics and stuff in the hallways of Westeros, and you can take that to the bank. The Iron Bank. But enough about me and my self-serving wordplay. Let's meet the rest of today's small council. First up, she is the founder of Geek Bomb, the host of the Power of Entertainment show on AMP, the host of Nerdist Book Club, and so much more. Please welcome Maud Garrett. A big hello. Hi. Maud, I'm so happy to have you here today. Yay. I can't believe we're doing more Game of Thrones stuff. It's I remember All Kings Considered way back when. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy, but uh, you know, uh, time is a flat circle, and Game of Thrones and chaos is a wheel. Whatever, chaos is a ladder. Uh, I'm mixing my metaphors already, but I'm happy to have you here. I have an important question, Mod. If yes. you were a pirate causing chaos in the Seven Kingdoms, what would your crab feeder esque name be? Could I be the irate pirate? <laughs> Absolutely. Who's going to stop you? <laughs> Prince Damon. He needs a letter from his brother to get anything done. Anyway. Uh, moving on, joining us once again, we have Nerdist staff writer, lore master, and heir to the Iron Throne of this show, Michael Walsh. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. Of course, Mikey. So, what's the update on the wig watch for this episode? How how are we doing on the hairpiece on the hairpiece division? Okay, after last week's wig apocalypse, we only had up to go, and we got there. We saw the wig master use a receding hairline to show the passage of time. It was. You know, I, I got to say, they are. Maybe it's just like I'm getting used to them, but I did find them less jarring overall this episode. So, fingers crossed, we're on an upward trajectory, at least as far as the hair pieces of Westeros are concerned. All right, folks, we're going to break down the episode for you in just a moment. But in order to talk about this in detail, we have to spoil what happens in House of the Dragon Episode 3. And as always, we're going to keep the book spoilers to a minimum. But if you're worried about that sort of thing, leave now before your spirits are well and truly crushed. Save me! <laughs> All right, let's get into it, shall we? So, folks, I want to start off. What were your overall impressions of the episode, Maude? Let's start with you on this one. Honestly, I think for me, I'm really enjoying the dragon component of House of the Dragon. I think that when you look at uh, Game of Thrones, it wasn't until sort of like the end of season one that dragons even existed. And then moving uh, up until like season four, they weren't even kind of like a a power move in war, but with House of the Dragon already, um, especially in this in this one where you just see what an asset these dragons are and how they can just immobilize armies. And so for me, like that's the best part. But I also love that um, our little Rainer is becoming a dragon herself. Yes, it's it's nice to see her breathe some fire uh, in and around court as well. But I, I agree with you. The the dragons, they are living up to uh, our expectations here for sure. And it's nice how they they really went out of their way. Uh, like kudos to all the visual artists who worked on this because the way that they move, like each dragon mm -hmm. we've seen so far moves differently. You have like the sort of creepy worm-like, like eldritch nature of Caraxes. And then you mm -hmm. had the sword more of like unexpected. I did a double take when we saw a sea smoke. We'll talk about that a little bit yes. later on. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely think that uh, we're getting the dragons and House of the Dragon in every sense of the word. Uh, Mikey, what about you? What were your thoughts about this episode? 
I think my favorite thing is probably something that a lot of people found frustrating. But I used to love how Game of Thrones would just sort of introduce characters without holding your hand. And it invited you to go back and rewatch scenes to even kind of learn who people were, let alone why they were important. And this episode was loaded with it. Um, there's no way I can talk about why certain characters are important without spoiling a lot. All I will say is that I would pay very close attention to everyone you met in this episode because some of them are going to be very important. And it, yeah. it was really fun to go back into it and make sure, like, even me, someone who knows all the characters, made sure I had them all in line. Yeah, even yeah, when it was such like, an introduction. Exactly. Right. There's just like, oh, no, no, please. Uh, there's all these, like, background details, too, where you're like, is that? Oh, wow, that is that person. You don't really quite put that together until... Uh, I, at least I didn't notice in some cases until I was going to put together the notes for today's show. But yeah, I, I, they're really loading each and every scene with a lot of detail to reward uh, those diehard fans, which is nice to see. Um, but something else with this episode is we're now three years after the events of episode two, which was six months after the events of episode one. How are you feeling about the time skips? Is this story structure working for you thus far? For me, uh, I like that they've got a story to tell and they're not going to get bogged down. Um, and so the fact that they are progressing that story just to get to the crux of it, I'm okay with it. The only thing I don't want is for this aging process to take me out of um, the story. I don't want to sit here going, well, does Millie Alcott look three years older when she's at such a young age to initially begin with? Uh, we know that they're going to have their characters age up and be played by different actors. And I'm kind of worried. There's a lot of um, trepidation going into that because it's like, you know, we've sad three episodes really understanding who these characters are only for their faces to completely change with a timeline shift. And we haven't had that before in Game of Thrones. So it's like an extra layer of storytelling that we're not particularly used to. Three years, the, the, the only thing that really occurred in that three years is that there was a baby all of a sudden, little Prince mm -hmm. Aegon. But that was like... That was kind of it for me. Um, Raina has a little bit more of an attitude um, because, you know, her best friend's now her stepmom. Uh, but apart from that, like, there wasn't, I, I feel, enough of a change for three years. Like, I mean, imagine that. Remember us three years ago? It was pre-pandemic. Oh, man. <laughs> See, that, that is the best way to kind of put that in context that I could think about. Uh, yeah, it was a very different world back in 2019, mm -hmm. uh, the, the halcyon days of 2019. <laughs> um, yeah, gosh. No, I think that I think you, you hit on something important there, and it doesn't seem like that much is different apart from the situation in the Stepstones has deteriorated, but it already seemed pretty bad to begin with. It's just even more people are getting eaten by even more crabs right now. Um, but yeah, I do think it is nice to see that sort of progression a little bit in relationship with Rhaenyra and um, Alicent, but... Yeah, it feels like the the baby, uh, uh, the young Prince Aegon is uh, sort of the biggest development here. But Mikey, what about you? How's this uh, sort of story structure working for you? I really like it. I've talked about it before. I want to get to the good stuff. And sometimes the good stuff is separated by years. Um, where I don't think it matters if you necessarily recognize that Otto Hightower is talking to his older brother immediately. Yeah. You do need to know the time jump. And I feel like they've handled that pretty well by handling it directly. You know, it's been six months from this. You know, the baby is, it's a second name day. So we know, you know, it's been basically three years. As long as that's clear, I think that's what's most important. And whether or not the story works for you after that, you know, will probably be up to you. But as long as they are making it clear exactly how much time, or at least, you know, general exact time. Nice phrase, I know. Um, 
as long as we have that, I think it works. And I think it's, I think it's a good sign of where this show is going and how much they're going to focus on the, the moments that matter the most. But to, to Maud's point as well, are, are you folks ready to say goodbye to um, Millie Alcock as Rhaenyra and Emily Carey as Allison to the next probably episode or two? It looks from next time we're going to like the next time on uh, House of the Dragon, we're going to see them at least for one more episode. But the rate they're going, I don't know how much longer we're going to have these two very talented actresses in the series. So are you ready to say goodbye to these folks and welcome in Olivia Cook and uh, I believe, oh my God, who's the other one? Uh, oh no, my brain is failing me, but the internet knows the answer because it's on IMDb somewhere. I'm just stalling for time while the master of whispers is frantically Googling. Uh, personally, I'd like to see these folks stand a little bit longer, but I can see how it would look pretty jarring to see uh, unexpected. Emma Darcy. Emma Darcy was on the tip of my tongue to see uh, these young folks in like older age makeup. You get a sort of um, uh, midnight mass effect, which really is one of the things that took me out of that show quite a bit. Like I liked it overall, but I was like, okay, I can this. This looks like uh, it's very clearly a young person playing older. Um, So I, I think that they're making the right call by having these multiple ages, but just feels sad that we're going to have to say goodbye to just mainly these two characters and we'll get basically all new actors for the rest of the cast. Uh, when right? finished, the rest of the cast is staying the same. When I finished the episode, I think that was the first thing I said was, I'm really going to miss these two. I think they've yeah. been phenomenal. And you know, there's just really no way to do this unless you want to get into casting an older actress and then going Star Wars creepy young CGI face. Uh, so you know, it's a necessary evil, but... It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a bummer. And uh, if anything, the, the two adult actresses that are taking over for them are going to have a lot to live up to. And I don't envy them. Uh, but if they are as good as the rest of the cast has been, and I think, we've, I think we've maybe not discussed enough how good the cast is. Like, pitch perfect casting. And a lot of these roles and these performances are great. Um, but yeah, at the very least, you hope these two young actresses, this is a huge huge step for them and we see them in other projects down the line and millie's aussie yay oi 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 yeah (laughs) um let's 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 move on to um someone else who i think made a big splash this episode had a very dramatic entrance Uh, it was a big crux of the episode and that is uh what's going on at the crab shack the stepstones of westeros uh prince damon and uh lord corliss valerian's war uh what were your thoughts on prince damon's big entrance at the episode's outset Oh, I love this because we're we're three episodes in and we're already looking at a redemption arc for uh, Damon, which I think I think we're talking about the same thing, yeah, right? Where he basically has nominated himself in the almost suicidal run, the Kamikaze expedition, where he is to go and venture into uh, the area itself where they keep proceeding into the caves where they find solace from the dragons. And so it's up to him single-handedly to draw them out so that the, the rest of the army can come in. This army that's finally been uh, sent to help when it's been three years of circling the drain, as I call it. Um, <laughs> so they've got this plan, but they need someone who isn't it, Corliss, is like, you know, whoever it is is stupid. They're, they're, they're just absolutely uh, not someone that we can convince because they'd be a madman. And so enter Damon, who's just like war paint on uh, the deceptive white surrender flag only to just attack. 
And I loved the post-show breakdown of this moment where they describe Damon's fighting style. And even Matt Smith himself says, this guy fights like he's not afraid to die. And I really, really loved sort of that energy and that recklessness and the absolute destruction that comes from it. And you start to like the guy and respect him. Yeah, it's it, you have to kind of root for someone when you see them kicking that much ass with a Valyrian steel sword and just sort of like uh, going solo against all of these weird murder pirates. And he took an arrow to the knee. <laughs> he did. And he's not going to be adventuring much longer, it sounds like, based on that. But based on historical records and uh, the maesters of Westeros, that's going to require a lot of leeches and maggots on his knee. Mm, um good. But yeah, he took he got hit by so many arrows this episode. He got hit at the beginning when he's on Caraxes. Um, he got hit multiple times underneath the like fragment of that ship. Thankfully, the rest of the archers there seem to be kind of like these stormtroopers yep. of uh the <laughs> of I the, felt uh, so bad for Rickon. Rickon had one arrow and it landed completely, and this guy's like dodging hundreds no, of arrows. No, there, we will, there will be no sympathy for Rickon who did not understand the simple concept of digging. Just just did not get the concept of running to the side. He gets, no he gets no sympathy. He gets no sympathy. Um, I had I, plenty for him at that moment. I was like, you know, I, think, I think what, and it's funny, you know, because I was thinking about the Rick on scene too. What really works here <laughs> is that Damon survives out of a combination of bravery and luck. You know, yeah. there's a reason that they say that this plan, we need a madman to do it, is because they know what's going to happen. And I think that this scene really conveyed that he kind of just got lucky as much as he was daring and bold. That's how these things go sometimes. And sometimes the fate of history in Westeros, just like in any, you know, in the real world hinges on bad luck or good luck. Yeah. It's bad luck or good luck motivated by a metric ton of spite. Yes, like the most yeah. powerful, gets that letter. Most powerful Dave, clearly. Much like Rickon has not heard of uh, zigging or zagging, uh, Damon has not heard of don't shoot the messenger. Um, yes, I guess he didn't okay. shoot him. He bludgeoned him bloody with his helmet. And they're just like, whoa, dude, come, please. Just yeah. leave him alone. No, no idiom about bludgeoning the messenger to death. Yeah. That's, you can do that. You just long, don't you shoot, shoot him. him. So I, I did I did like that that plan, like it, people, I saw some folks online complaining like, Camp, that plan's ridiculous. How'd it work? Why'd the pirate king, send, why'd the crab feeder send all his guys out? Because uh, look, this is a, a man addled by grayscale who seems patently mad. His only delight in life is to feed people to crabs. Of course, he's going to send people to take down this high value target who's ostensibly surrendering. And then he's like, oh, you're trying to trick us. We're going to we're going to chop you up and feed you to the crabs. Um, but the one thing I really liked about this um, is when we saw, you know, you keep expecting Caraxes and like you see the yes. crab feeder looking up at the sky expecting Caraxes. But then it's not Caraxes at all. It's Lenor on a dragon we haven't seen. So, uh, Mikey, can you give us a little backstory or background on Lenor's dragon, Sea Smoke? Like, who is this dragon? What does it mean for us? So Sea Smoke is a younger dragon and Lenor is his first rider. So, you know, it can be kind of tough unless you see the dragons close by to, to know which one's really big and which one's smaller. Sea Smoke is definitely on the smaller side, but he's fast. And we saw, you know, he's not afraid to get in there. And having dragons, spoiler alert, is good. Dragons are a plus, <laughs> you know, when you go to war. Although before this moment, we see there are limits to dragons. You know, there is only so much you can do. People can hide 
they can survive. This is how Dorne, you know, I, I don't think a lot of people even realize this from Game of Thrones, but the idea of Aegon conquering the Seven Kingdoms is a lie. Aegon never conquered Dorne. He tried. He tried a couple times, but it didn't go well because the Dornish kept hiding. When him and his sister showed up with dragons, they went hiding. And Dorne is still not a part of Westeros during this era. They're not going to become part of Westeros for a, a while longer when they marry into the Targaryen family. So I think that this episode did a great job of showing, considering we know what's coming, that dragons can do a lot, but you still need soldiers and you still need support. You still need people to fight for you. But what I like about this as well, it's like all of Game of Thrones, the Targaryens were so few, right? Um, and I love that there was always that rich history that the Targaryens had their dragons and that's why their reign lasted for so long. And I really like that we're getting a sense of, oh, yeah, these dragons as an asset is why they have so much power and why they are like immovable as reigning you know the reigning family the reigning house um, of Westeros for so long but you're right we're now seeing what tens of thousands of years I think it is correct me if I'm wrong and correct me off any names that I'm getting wrong as well I'm just bleh. um but what we're seeing is ad uh, adapting they're recognizing that they don't have dragons um and I think it was even uh with uh, Jason Lannister who's like oh you wouldn't turn down a dragon and he's like and do you have any dragons no Shut your mouth, son. Uh, so, I, you know, just how, and this is why my, it was my favourite part of the episodes where we're really seeing these dragons come together. I will say, though, um, no, I've forgotten. But I'll come back to it. I'll interrupt. It's all good. I, all good. good. <laughs> I, I, I have a question about something that might be even yeah. more dangerous than dragons, and that is should Damon get tested for grayscale after yeah. he dismembered the crab feeder and was holding his hand, just dragging him out of that cave. So this was a small change from the source material. Um, Damon was supposed to, I was waiting for it, was supposed to behead the crab feeder. But since they gave him grayscale and it was mostly on his face and neck and top part, it made sense that the show changed that so that he could slice him in half and safely drag the top part of his body like his arm that way he could avoid coming in contact with it. That's smart. I like that adjustment. Uh, wow. The thing I said before, the, the, I, have, I remembered what I was going to say, that I want to <laughs> see more of the Targaryens not being able to burn. Um, so I was actually waiting for a moment. Oh, yes, Michael, no, you're about to. probably not going to happen. That is something that's really very specific to Daenerys, Targaryen. Oh. And, uh, in fact, there's a, um, this is not a spoiler for the show, might be a spoiler for Dunkin' Egg someday. So if you don't want to hear a spoiler for a show that might happen 10 years from now, just silence this for 10 seconds. But um, King Aegon, King Aegon the Unlikely, he dies in a, in a terrible wildfire um, fiasco trying to hatch dragon eggs. Um, it's, it's the same night that Rhaegar Targaryen is born and it's the tragedy of Summerhall. So there's, there's no reason necessarily to think that we're going to see any other Targaryens who are impervious to fire. Although I feel like they did tease that a little bit when Viserys was kind of running his hands over the candles. I think it was last mm. episode a little bit. But I, once again, I will not spoil anything, but I will just say not, at the very least, there will be some major figures who are not, some major Targaryen figures who are not impervious to flames. 
Because what I was hoping for is that you had Damon who was just out there standing alone, surrounded. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, how's that dragon going to get that angle? And then I was like, well, if he's Targaryen and they light the whole thing on fire and it's just him, very end of season one finale with, a, you know, corpses and ashes burning all around him. And then we solve the wig problem. One switch move. <laughs> it just burns away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hey, uh, a, now, we have a, a completely hairless Matt Smith for the rest of the series. I don't think he'd oh complain. Smooth like a dolphin, which is the uh, <laughs> the creed of House Valerian. Um, <laughs> no, I, I did have. I was going to say, go you, joke, you joke, but right now there are people watching this who are saying, when Daenerys came out of the fire, she was supposed to be bald. All of her hair burned off. That's not funny. They should have done that. And let me tell you something. It was better that she kept her hair. Relax. It's just they can change yeah, it. It's more yeah, more dramatic. She can, yeah, it's more dramatic. Exactly. Fire, her hair can survive the fire. Everybody just. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I what Maude, I'm with you. I was expecting um, him to lure them out, and then do you have Caraxes come with this sort of like kamikaze run of mm. uh, just like dragon fire with Damon kind of walking through the flames like Sephiroth in Final Fantasy VII. Um, but I think the way I look at it right now, given that we know that not all Targaryens are um, uh, immune to flame, is they have probably like like a plus 15 resistance to fire damage. That's how I'm rationalizing yes. the candle and their sort of tolerance for riding those dragons as well. Um, but let's let's move on a little bit to, uh, you know, we touched on prophecy a little bit. And uh, this is sort of at the core of one of the biggest events of the episode. And that is the great hunt for Prince Aegon II's name day. They celebrated with a massive hunt, which I saw some folks online saying this is George R. R. Martin's redemption for how comparatively lame the uh, hunt was in uh, Game of Thrones, the one where uh, King Robert dies, where it's like three dudes in the woods. This is just like, <laughs> hey, we're gonna we're gonna do a hunting scene correctly. Um, so, what were your thoughts on on how this played out? What were your favorite moments within here? Uh, I mean, I would love to hear Michael explain in better detail than I ever could about the importance and the representation of the white stag and how it's very, very superstitious and how uh, throughout the course of Game of Thrones this has represented either a huge win or the downfall. And this is what happened, I think it's in the book of Game of Thrones, um, the white stag was found but it had already been eaten by wolves and that represented the downfall of the Baratheon line Um which I thought was quite interesting. But here we're going full shadow and bone. I'm not sure if anyone's read the series or watched the Netflix show, but the whole of book one is about finding this Mm -hmm. giant white stag. Uh, And so it was really, really reminiscent of that. Uh, I think Lee Bardugo, either a coincidence in writing or heavily inspired by George R.R. Martin uh, because the white stag has been featured for a long time. Um, But I really love the fact that you have Viserys who's almost looking for uh, this symbolism. The fact that the white stag has been found and seen during uh, the scouting on Aegon's second name day, you know, they're really drilling in this sort of sign that, well, would you know that, you know, we've really got a crown Aegon because of all this symbolic nature and the white stag. But then cut to the fact that the hunt couldn't find the white stag at all. It's just a regular stag. And Viserys went all limp with uh, the killing process. And I am not a fan of that sort of animal violence that is drawn out and arduous. But it was a CGI stag. Yeah. I mean, that the sort of the brutality of that scene and the sort of like it was like it. it 
it was really a nice parallel with uh, what happened with Rhaenyra in this episode where you have yes. you know, King Viserys, who is just this kind of like almost ineffectual king. He's like to the point where he can't even hunt himself. He has to have he's hung over. He's just like, oh, my God, I have to go stab this thing right now. And then it's being held down by multiple like leal lords and footmen. And he gives it an improper stab the first time. Whereas, look, it's not like Rhaenyra's kill was clean. She uh, answered the question of what happens when 30 to 50 feral hogs come through the Kingswood. Uh, you stab them with a Valyrian steel dagger. But it was also nice to illustrate that, like, oh, Rhaenyra is not afraid to get her hands dirty. She will get bloody. And it felt like that felt like nice symbolism, too, for what's to come. Well, um, Rhaenyra has been so controlled her whole life. Um, and now that she's, you know, she's really panicking that her father's going to replace her as the heir and that she's got no point or purpose and she's literally fleeing and trying to run away. So there is this moment where, you know, the boar is dead but she's just stabbing into it and it's almost like she's reclaiming her power. And then when she's covered in blood coming back into the campsite, dragging this wild boar behind her, that is a really symbolic nature. And I think it's great that, you know, Viserys is seeing that she's got queen qualities and we're getting more and more of that and he's backing his decision uh, to the dismay of many other houses, especially the High Towers. But to the delight of the, uh, I think it was the Strong family that we saw like it, when she's coming back into the camp. Um, and we'll learn more about these folks in future episodes. I'm not going to say too much more, but they were sort of alluded to. Played by Ryan Cole, who's an Aussie. <laughs> yes, uh, we got Sir... Uh, I think we saw Breakbones. I think we saw Sir Harwin Breakbones Strong, the one who's like, he's just thrilled to see her bring that dead boar back into the camp. Uh, so it was nice to see sort of the range of emotions there. But let's take a step back for a moment to the to the white uh, heart. Uh, Mikey, what, what were your impressions of this? So I, sometimes I'm envious of people who can watch these episodes with a normal brain and not my brain. <laughs> because as you mentioned, George R. R. Martin, as soon as they showed the royal hunt was this big deal. I was like, oh, oh, they're fixing George R. R. Martin's least favorite scene. He's actually called it. It's a, it's about 90 seconds in season one. It's when Robert goes hunting. It's where he ultimately gets uh, gored by the boar that kills him. And when he goes hunting, he's with his brother, Renly, his squire, Lancel, who's drugging him with a fortified strong line, and his uh, because of Cersei. Lord Commander. And it's just the four of them walking through the woods. And George R. R. Martin and James Hibbard's oral history of the show said it's his least favorite scene because even though he did not write it in the books, in the books, Robert just goes off and then we find out he's been gored. Even though he didn't write it, he knows what goes into a royal hunt. It would be hundreds of people, pavilions, lots of horses, lots of dogs, a whole thing. He was very mad at the idea that people did not know that he knows what goes into a royal hunt. So that was very cool in terms of that and fixing that, you know, and they did the same thing in episode one with the jousting tournament, which he had also talked about how small it was on Game of Thrones mm -hmm. because of budget concerns. Um, as for the actual hunt itself, finding a white heart is, you know, I think they did a good job conveying it. It's, it's supposed to be a magical creature and finding it on Aegon's name day, you know, should mean something. But as you kind of saw from Otto Hightower, a lot of these things with omens and signs, people just twist how they want you know, it's kind of like prophecy the same way where they misread prophecy all the time. They also just misuse signs and omens that might not even be signs and omens. You know, they, they don't really know when things happen all the time that they didn't think was going to happen. Um, that scene, though, did go back to Game of Thrones royal hunt because we saw two things. We saw why a wild boar would be able to kill a drunk king. 
you know, we, we not only saw how dangerous the boar was, we saw that even though Viserys had everybody holding this giant stag just for him to kill, if he stumbled, he might have he might have died. That thing might have just, you know, gorged his neck and he'd, he'd have been dead. And we also saw, you know, that the Kingswood is a place that is not only close to King's Landing, it's important because it's been declared a place for kings, period. Like, Roy, people can't just go hunting rabbits there. It's all off limits. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if people notice, if you go back and you watch the episode, when they kind of get the establishing shot of all the pavilions, you can see King's Landing in the distance. It's a really great shot to kind of give you the, the place. And, you know, everything surrounding King's Landing is going to be important going forward. You know, there's going to be people fighting for the Iron Throne and everything that happens nearby is important. So I, I thought they did a lot really, really well with that scene, both the, the actual usage and the way they did it and how they set up so, so many things going forward. Yeah, I, I loved all the... Um you know, it, people using prophecy as a means of politicking and like that's yeah. something that like Viserys really took umbrage with because all these people are trying to like use this as a chance to be like, hey, what if we did this? But I have to say my favorite of those scenes uh, is not Sir Jason Lannister getting the smackdown <laughs> is uh, rather when we get to see uh, Lara Strong, uh, better known in the books as the Clubfoot um, and in sort of that like little gossip circle of all of the powerful ladies of the realm, including the pug who was promised um, his little, his little like bis- uncomfortable, like biscuit munch after uh, Rhaenyra smacks down uh, lady red wine was just uh, uh, was a delight to see. Well, shadowing. Mm, no. mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that that's the same pug from Dune 1980 something. Um, all right. So uh, I want to, I also want to talk about, uh, Patty Considine, uh, you know, we're talking about how we didn't, we weren't giving the the cast their due. This is some of the best drunk acting I have yes. ever seen, and just labored ev- breathing, the labored breathing, the little mannerisms, like the kind of like jerky movements, and then when he's just like standing, staring into the fire, and then gives this kind of, you know, to Allison, it sound it must sound crazy. This talk about when I was a kid, I had a dream that I would. I would have a, a child wearing a, the conqueror's crown and I wanted this to be so true, but it didn't come true. And so I thought Rhaenyra would be my way to get out of this. And it was nice to see you, you feel that like he knowing that he knows Aegon's dream, the song of ice and fire, this prophecy, and knowing that dreamers, people that can foretell the future run in the Targaryen family. It's really fascinating to see that he wants this ability more than anything. And I feel like that, do you think that makes him more susceptible to prophetic uh, auguries and things like that? Yeah, you know, it's it's really dangerous because the Targaryens know for a fact that prophecy is what saved them. <clears throat> you know, their ancestor, uh, Denny's the dreamer. She foresaw the, the doom of Valeria a dozen years before it happened. If that, she doesn't have that dream and her father doesn't act on it, they're dead like every other Valerian you know, that was a dragon lord. So the fact that they have this and they have this dream from Aegon who conquered this this continent because of the dream, it really makes it hard to know when are you just dreaming of something you want versus when are you having a prophecy? And the fact that you can read into any dream that way makes every dream you have dangerous. I, I will say this though, and it might seem like a minor thing, but the fact that Viserys has the specific dream of his son wearing Aegon the Conqueror's crown, not every Targaryen king wears the same crown. 
sometimes they do repeat. Sometimes somebody will wear, you know, a predecessor's crown or someone that came two or three before them, but not all of them just pass down the same crown. So that is a very specific dream. And I'll leave it up to people to find out if that means anything. But the fact that he specified wearing the conqueror's crown is partly why he believed it was prophecy and not just a dream. So what does he not want his uh, Aegon to be the heir to conquer all the seven realms? Like, what does that help me out with that? I, I think that, and forgive me if I'm wrong, Mikey, I think that he was like really expecting, like based on that dream, his entire life, he was expecting to have a son that would ascend to the Iron Throne. And then when he like really pushed um, Emma, uh, his his first wife that we saw in the first episode, to give birth to their son at the expense of her life, mm-hmm. um, and then the and then young Prince Balon, the heir for a day, died as well. He felt really sort of broken and betrayed, and he didn't think that he was ever going to remarry. So he thought that maybe just like his like sort of greed to fulfill this had forsaken him. Uh, but now that he has a son and he's named Rhaenyra to be his heir. He's like, well, that dream could still happen. Was I wrong to do this? And it's this like, really? He mentions it later on with Rhaenyra where he's like, I did waver for a moment, but I now I'm back with you. I think right. that's that moment where he's like, that's, you know, he's that's his truest inner monologue. He's drunk out of his mind. And he's like, yeah, did I, I think I might have screwed up. I might have made a mistake. I, you know, I might maybe my prophecy was real. At least that's how it, it was sort of read to me. Cool. Thank you. I, I will say this in terms of drunk acting. It was phenomenal, but it does not usurp the greatest drunk actor of our lifetime and maybe any lifetime, Caitlin Olson from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Oh, <laughs> nobody, nobody can touch her when it comes to drunk acting. There's nobody better. Uh, but Patty Cotstein was great. And, you know, they, they used that for what was actually my favorite scene in the entire episode. It, I think it's right after Otto Hightower pitches to him you know, how about marrying your kids together? And all of a sudden, Viserys is just sitting there alone drunk and it the, the camera kind of gets a little blurry and it gets out of focus and you hear everybody laughing and having a good time. Mm-hmm. And Viserys is just sitting there completely isolated without a friend in the world. And th- this episode really got into this in, in a way that I thought was fantastic. Why would anybody want this for their kid? Why would anybody want to put this responsibility on their kid? Because being king is not fun. Being in charge is not fun. And if anything, we kind of see how much better it is to be a Targaryen who's not in charge because you get all of the power and you get all of the prestige without the responsibility. I, I mean, for me, I would much, I'd much rather be a prince. But we've already seen Rhaenyra wanting to inject herself into these council meetings, wanting to take action, wanting to use her resources and power in a way to be able to shift the pieces on the board. So I think her being a bystander, it's weird because a couple of things have bounced back and forward. King Viserys was initially like, you need to marry, like, you know, you're going to have to marry. This is a part of it. You've always known that this is what happens when you're royalty. And then he's like, but marry for love. And then initially she's kind of like, I want to fight my dragon and I want to change the world. And I was able to kind of bring the egg back unscathed. And now she's like, oh, now that the responsibility is actually going to a place I don't want, I'm going to flee to the forest for like a day or two just to kind of get away from it all. So it's like a lot of not contradictions, but back and forth or I guess self-discovery. Yeah. I I mean, look, she's she's 17 years old. She is sort of really coming into her own for the first time and also dealing with 
a very messed up family situation like that. I think we yep. cannot undersell the uh, weirdness of your like if your best friend were to marry your father and become your stepfather, you're like, excuse me, we were just yeah. no, you're not. You're my but you're the queen now as mm -hmm. well. As a single woman, it's like a really powerful threat that I can make now, which I'm really excited about. Of course. No, see, that's see that. Oh, that yeah, is I'll marry your dad. Please don't. <laughs> He's I'm going to be dead. <laughs> the perfect Dan. crime. Dan. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that note, let's move on to another father of the year. Uh, the man himself, middle finger, Otto Hightower, the hand of the king, doing some uh, some behind the scenes puppeteering once again uh, with that weird decor in uh, Allison's room, which is just like Kama Sutra-esque. If you look on the, on the walls, there's just weird... <laughs> uh don't look on the walls then. there don't oh, look on the walls then see i should just i should just uh put on my uh, king viserys blurry cam and then uh, walk into a room um but he what knew, do we think he knew about what he was doing oh clear he always and knows what he's doing yeah yeah i'd but i want to like let's talk about otto's relationship with um uh allison to this episode and then how we see kind of allison coming into her own a little bit because where we come up where we meet allison at the beginning of this episode where she's kind of like taking a uh, guff from Rhaenyra in the uh, Godswood uh, versus the end of the episode when she's like, well, what would be best for the realm? You ever think about that? Huh? Huh? Viserys? Viserys? Eyes up? Viserys, look at me. Do this. <laughs> so what, what were your impressions of Alicent this episode? Well, you know, it's funny because we see that when she comes out to find Rhaenyra, we see that somebody who marries into the family and becomes queen immediately has more power than the princess who is the heir to the Iron Throne. And then later we see her with her father, who's the hand of the king, is calling her your grace. Um, I, If they name my son king, I'm still calling him Alexander. I'm not calling him your grace. <laughs> but in Westeros, that's just how it goes. And then, yeah, we see her start to realize, like, hey, wow, they put me in this position of power, and now I have power. I can use it, and I can use it potentially for good. Which she, you know, she's right. She's right. Like, stop worrying about, and this is Viserys' biggest problem. He always wants to please everybody. He wants to please everybody, but it's impossible to, to rule and please everybody. And she puts it straight to him in a way that, you know, he as the old, old leader should know. Like, don't do what you want. Do what's best for the realm, which is something we constantly see the Targaryens not doing. You know, we see him not marry somebody he should for the sake of the realm. We see her fighting to marry someone for the sake of the realm. Meanwhile, they both know Aegon's dream. And it makes everything they do very selfish. And not in a way that is, you know, like, oh, I want to follow my heart. It's like, you have the responsibility of the world on your shoulders. Do you want it or not? Because if you don't want it, fine. But you, if you do want to take it on, you have to start making good decisions. And nobody makes good decisions. So at least Allison being there to push him towards a good decision was a nice change of pace. How much of it is Alicent and how much of it is her father in her ear? I think for now, I think for now in this episode that we saw Alicent kind of being her own person. I also don't think it helped that uh, Otto Hightower was so blatant in this episode that everybody saw right through him. You know, and he last week when he's telling Viserys, oh, you know, I, I would hate to be forced to marry somebody. You know, I miss my, my wife. I don't envy you. You know, there was, there was some truth there, and it was really it was, it was clever, and it worked on Viserys. 
This week he's like, oh, uh, I don't believe in signs, but ooh, a white heart, huh? <laughs> and Stephen Harris kind of like smile and pat him like, okay, this is, please, please. That's why when later on when he's saying marry Aegon and Rhaenyra, Viserys is like, I've had enough of this. And I've had enough of you, basically. You know, so he, he definitely did not up his game. He downed his game this week. Uh, and I actually, I think out of the biggest signs of three years going by, it's probably Alison's development. It's Alison coming into her own, uh, you know, learning about this power, the dynamics she has with Raina, um, and now how she's whittling her way into co-ruling with uh, Viserys, her husband. Every time she addresses him, my love, my husband, she's really, really reinforcing this pair that they are together. And then it's little things like, could I read the letter? Oh, I'll just offer a little bit of advice with that. And it's slow, but she's really starting to seep in because I think, you know, we can physically see Viserys holding more and more burden. And so she's actually using that to be able to alleviate that burden, but also help um, increase her power. That's and the cool. the directors uh, and the cinematographer did a really great job of, they always make sure that when like something's going on with Viserys, they also show that Alicent is clocking that and like keeping tabs on him, like in the in the small council meeting at the beginning, or when they're making plans for the name day, like during the uh, the great hunt when he's kind of like on the throne, or like when he's arguing with Rainier, she's always got an eye on what's going on. Um, and I do. She is even like trying to mend bridges with uh, her former BFF, and might be a futile effort, but. Um, but needs her as an ally because knows exactly. that Viserys is not wavering on her becoming the heir. So she's like to continue the power. If it's not going to be her son that's king, it's going to be her bestie, ex-bestie that's queen. And so she needs to get back in on a really good term with her. Yeah, and I I did appreciate that at least at the beginning. She's what her conversation with Otto. She's like, well, Rhaenyra is the heir. Like, what are you talking like? Yeah, I love my son, but like Rainier is clearly the heir. She's been named. They all swore to her. Um, so it's nice to see that sort of like she's not entirely cynical yet. King's Landing hasn't kind of torn her to shreds. Like I feel like it just uh, like so many people that come in, they're like, oh, boy, what a nice trip to the capital of the Seven Kingdoms. And then just emerge like haggard and just very scheming and plotting. But definitely seems like that she can uh, pull strings herself when it, when it uh, makes sense to do so. That's probably the difference uh, in the Game of Thrones where it was like literally the game of Thrones and you mm -hmm. had to land that position on the throne at whatever cost. And we found out really quickly that for some people it cost them everything. And I think with this, in this instance, it's not about having security on the throne, you know, but it's about sort of playing within um, the possibilities of what's going to happen. And I love that the, it's not so furiously eye on the prize to getting the crown. Yes, and there's a for lot some. of people. For, have, some. Well, for some, no, I mean the 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 Iron Throne is still a pretty tempting chair, however uncomfortable and dangerous it may to be to sit upon. But which makes yes. me have a prediction about Damon. Now Damon has finally kind of cleansed the land of these crab feeders, and that they've opened up the shipping passage, and that's going to restore mm. trade to the kingdom. I'm wondering if he's going to come home with a little bit of gloat in his step. I know he's already got two wives. But I'm wondering if he's going to use that as a way, if if Rainier and Rainiera is 100% the heir, he's actually going to start using her to get into ruling, and he's going to well, try and get marriage there because she's it, stopping. 
if we if he learned anything from uh, his time in the Stepstones and uh, his opponent, you know what we call that? Imitation crab. Anyway, uh, no, I, I do think that Damon is going to be the biggest sort of wild card coming back into the fold, especially since he's been kind of off to the side on his like uh, tropical murder vacation for the past three years. And that's going to really add some uh, dragon fire to the uh, to the sept um, or I don't know what the uh, kerosene uh, equivalent is here. I'm um, just thinking about that uh, explosive episode in uh, Game of Thrones season, whatever. Oh, yes, um, yes. But uh, as we sort of wind down this episode, I want to talk about who was your um, MVP of this episode and why. I'm going outside the box. I think this will probably surprise people, <clears throat> but I'm going with Lord Strong. He showed that he is the only one around the king who is giving good counsel. He's actually doing his job. He is trying to strengthen King Viserys and his family, and he's trying to put the realm in the best position it can be. And I'm not really sure we've seen any other adult. I'll give all the kids a break for now. I'm not sure we've seen any other adult who's been wholly good in any way aside from him. It was Ned Stark, but we saw how that ended. Yeah. He's coming. He's coming. He's the greatest man who ever lived. He's the greatest man. I'm just talking about this era. Ned Stark is the he's, greatest man who ever lived. I feel like Lord Strong here is a combination of, the, you know, the goodness of uh, Ned Stark with a little bit of the deceptiveness of Viser- um, the Whisperer, Lord Whisperer. Varys. Varys. Thank you. It's kind of like a culmination of both of those. And we saw, I mean, we, we got to see another person who's going to exhibit Varys-esque qualities, who coincidentally is named Laris. So uh, that'll be <laughs> nice to see play out as the uh, series goes on. Um, but Maude, who is your, who's your MVP? Um, I have to remember the name really quickly. Lainor. Lainor yeah. Valerian. I really, really like this young gun of a captain uh, who's challenging his elders because they're just not making good decisions and he's like, you know, Lord of Complaints, you know, he's really throwing it around and he saved the day. He came in and he's like riding that dragon like nobody's biz. In fact, I wouldn't mind Lenor and because, um, you know, they're trying to get that that partnership happening but it didn't work with Viserys. So I'm wondering if it's, it's like another option to be um, Rhaenyra's potential betrothed. I think that could be fun. But it, yeah. you know, I understand that they're already both Targaryens. Oh, no, he's a Valerian. Yes, they, they both have blood uh, reaching back, pure blood reaching back to old Valyria. Um, mm. So what a, what a match indeed. You know, Dan, um, I, I think some people might be confused about how he can ride a dragon at all. Um, even though House Valerian were not dragon riders, not only does he have pure Valerian blood, his mother is a Targaryen. So he is a Targaryen, which is why he's able to get on the back of that dragon. And that that fact matters. The fact that, you know, these... Targaryen family members are the ones who can get on the back of dragons, as we saw, you know, with Jon Snow many years later. Even even if Game of Thrones completely undersold why that was so important, um, you know, it's a big deal when anybody gets on a, a dragon's back and they accept him because dragons only take one rider at a time, and they only take that rider until one of them is dead. If if a rider dies, they might take on another one. Um, if someone's dragon dies, it's not doesn't quite work the same way. But it is a big deal that he got on, and it's a big deal that he is a Targaryen. Just let me ship them having a magic dragon ride all around Westeros. I can't oh. say anything. I can't say anything about who's who's going to do what. But uh, I I love all your questions. If that helps. Okay. 
there and there are plenty of magic dragons to ride. But for me, uh, it my MVP was someone who didn't ride a dragon, but rather uh, found themselves on the wrong end of a dragon. Uh, a bit unexpected, but I could not stop thinking about him, the poor bastard at the beginning, who's like, you, you'll never get me, crab feeder. Oh boy, it's Prince Damon here to rescue me. I'm going to live forever. Squash. It was... That was so darkly funny to me. That had and anime energy. <laughs> truly. It was just, it was incredible from start to finish. Kudos to everyone involved in that sequence. Just because As his you face get, is getting yeah, snipped. Yeah. <laughs> you, get, you get the horror of uh, being eaten alive by crabs. You get to see the crab feeder and all of his nightmarish glory. And then you get to see this just false hope where you're like, it really illustrates like, look, Prince Damon does not give a rat's ass about you. You are just a tool to him and squash. It was, <laughs> I can't get enough of him. So RIP King, uh, long may you reign. Um, I hope we see a comeback as a, a white scuttler or whatever they have down in the tropics there. Um, but yeah, I want to talk about, uh, in addition to that, before, right as we wrap up, um, there were a couple little Easter eggs this episode, and I'm sure there's more that we haven't uncovered, but one they mention in particular um, is Joanna Swan, who was kidnapped by the uh, Crab Feeders forces. Mikey, what can you tell us about Joanna Swan? Do you think we're going to see the Black Swan at all in this series, or is that just a fun throwaway for book readers? I, if I had to bet money on it, I'm going to say it's just going to be a fun little thing, just because how they would get her involved and get her story is so far down the line. But if they do, it'll be, it'll be fantastic. It'll be great to meet her someday. Um, I just, I'm not sure I'd gamble on that one. Let her be an informant in the whole house of the free cities. See, that would be, she does if, if I'm mistaken, she becomes like uh, one of the most vaunted courtesans and like power players in the free cities. Uh, so I, I would look, I'd be interested to see the black swan storyline play out at some point. But again, that is probably a season two or three thing, if at all. Maybe they just drop this in now for people who have read the books. Um, something else, uh, and this is another sort of repeated Easter egg motif. The song that that bard Samwell is singing in the Godswood is related to uh, Nymeria and the Ten Thousand Ships. And why? Why is that important? Nymeria uh, fled the Roinar. She was a princess who fled the Roinar with, they say, ten thousand ships, and she took her people to get away from the Valerian freehold. And she kept going places, and nothing worked out until she finally landed in Dorne, married into House Martell, and she burned all her ships. And that's why uh, some of the Dornish look differently because they have different ancestors. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think the show's ever gone into this, but there are like three distinct types of people in Dorne. Um, and Nymeria is a hero. She's a hero. She was one of Arya's heroes. She named her direwolf after Queen uh, Nymeria. In fact, uh, Nymeria is why even once they came into the kingdom, they married into the Targaryens, that Nymeria is the reason why House Martell gets to keep their titles of prince and princess. That's why he was, you know, Prince Oberon, even though nobody else, you know, it wasn't like Prince Rob Stark or anything like mm -hmm. that. Um, so Nymeria, they, they are working, they are developing a prequel. Uh, I think it's one of the long shots, but Nymeria is definitely one of like Westeros's greatest heroes. Awesome. Well, I would like to see that come to fruition, but only time will tell. Um, now, was there anything else that we didn't get to discuss that you wanted to bring up? Uh, any other moments from the episode? Well, Harwin Breakbones, they say, is the strongest knight in the Seven Kingdoms. 
he doesn't really look like the strongest knight. You know, we're used to seeing the mountain. The mountain? In Brienne of Tarth, right? We're used to seeing these giant knights, and that's kind of how I always envisioned him. But they did something, and I bet you have to watch it a few times to get it. When they are holding the stag, everybody is on horseback except for him. He's the only one holding the stag with his bare hands. Oh. It's very, it's very cool, and it's very subtle. But he is a very strong man, uh, and his brother. Um, you know, it's it's funny because he's the strongest knight in the Seven Kingdoms, and his brother is intentionally going around telling people that he's too weak to even hunt. You know, and and if without giving anything away, the fact that any man in this world would openly say, "Well, I'm too weak to go out with the men. Do you mind if I sit with you, ladies?" That should really give you some insight into what each man is all about. So we have, uh, we've got the break bones and we've got the spider, uh, I guess the pre-spider. Um, we'll have mm. to see what, uh, what title they wind up giving him. Uh, Maude, anything else you wanted to bring up or? Yeah, it's just so funny because Ryan Core is the actor playing the strongest knight in all the realms. And this kid as an Australian actor was on a soap opera for a long time and then basically <laughs> got like ostracized from Australia because he was found with illegal drugs in his pocket. So the fact that oh, he's no. on one of the biggest shows, good on him. What a bounce back. <laughs> yeah, truly. I, I, you know, I love to see a good redemption arc. Everyone <laughs> yeah. does. No wonder he's smiling so big. I would Truly, he should be. He should be. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, I think that about does it. I'm feeling a bit crabby myself, so it's time to wrap things up. But don't worry, because we'll be back next week with some Blackwater Bay Biscuit and another breakdown of House of the Dragon. And if you want to dive even deeper into this episode and beyond, we've got you covered over on Nerdist.com. Thank you again to everyone who tuned in. And thank you so much to my amazing guests. Maude, where can people find you on the World Wide Web? Well, I got this little thing here at Maud Garrett, which you can put into any social media and find it. But uh, Tuesday night, I don't know when this comes out tonight, um, we are doing a episode of Notice Book Club where we are wrapping up uh, talks about a book called Vicious by V.E. Schwab, which is about what happens if you had a near-death experience and then came to and all of a sudden had superpowers. So we're going to be tackling that, Rachel Hine and I, tonight, which will be a lot of fun from 5 p.m. PT. Fantastic. Awesome, awesome. And Mikey, where can people find you? If you want to yell at me for some opinion that you think is 100% wrong, you can find me on Twitter at Burger Mike. And if you want to read about Game of Thrones or the Rings of Power or my ability to try to keep both fantasy worlds straight, you can go to the greatest website anybody ever invented, the one that pays me to write about both of them, Nerdist.com. All right. Mike, I feel like I've been your shield for this because I called her Reyna once. And so, like, yeah, I'm going to be taking all of the comments off your hands today. You're welcome. They'll they'll find something. You know what, folks? Here at Nerdist, we accept comments of every stripe and put them in the comment section down below. More specifically, let us know, what did you think about this episode? What was your favorite moment in this episode? Let us know in the comments below. And for the latest and greatest in the world of pop culture, make sure you stay tuned to Nerdist.com. All right, bye-bye. <laughs>